Hello everyone, I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC and my microphone is not close enough to me. It is now. Hooray. It's time for another Ask Wrexham podcast. So you, you throw in the questions and we'll try to answer them. And we've got some good ones today. I've grouped a few together because they've raised some of the questions. So here's three to start off with. Wayne Cram, is there conventional wisdom in how to play a league opponent in the Carabao Cup this early in the season? Is winning second to getting minutes in your legs? learning more about your squad while scouting a league rival, or do you just try and win it and advance in the draw? Good question. Also, if I can just roll this all around as well, Randy Kruger asks, would this be a good game, the Carabao Cup game, to sub the goalkeeper in the second half if we have a lead, get some experience into the young ladders, McNicholas. And also Cryptic asks, are we going against the spirit of football by selling out the Pizza Cup match against Newcastle in the 21s? Should Wrexham fans join the bit of the boycott, or is that not really a thing? Uh, we are so now so big, this is the only opportunity for some of us to see the team live. Right, okay, let's go through this. Right, Le- how seriously you take the League Cup? Well, I would say that, that does vary from manager to manager. I would argue that teams do take it seriously. I mean, if you look at the Wrexham side that, that we picked, okay, we did give Palmer a break, but then, you know, Dolby at the start of the season was probably ahead of Palmer in the pecking order. And I think that Parkinson feels he's got a strong squad and there's a lot of players he can bring in without really diminishing the quality of the side. So, you know, I think this is more genuine rotation where he feels that he's bringing in players of a similar quality, not somebody throwing it away. You might see, obviously, a big sort of Premier League team picking all their young players. Sometimes they'll have like some stars on the bench to throw on. But I would say generally managers are going to take the League Cup seriously, but might still use it to give minutes in some players' legs if they feel they're of that quality. I suppose some managers are a bit less keen about it, not so upset about losing some fixtures. But the thing is, I mean, all right, we weren't going to win the League Cup, but we could have drawn a big team at home in the next round and, and had a go at making another memory. And remember, Parkinson, incredibly, took Bradford to the final, which is astonishing. So we can't accuse him of not taking it seriously. I think the changes he makes tend to be because he's looking to bring in players that he thinks are just as good, more than him trying to just, you know, sort of not take it that seriously, I would argue. As for the question about McNicholas, well, I suppose there's another question here, isn't there? And although it's kind of ephemeral in a way, I I do think it's worth saying you've got to, I would argue, not disrespect your opponents too much. I I, I can't think of something like that being done where you feel you're on top of a game, so let's throw a substitute on it. Outfield players, maybe so, because you don't, maybe don't, it's not so obvious. But mm, I can't think of an example where you throw that keeper on. I think that could irk uh, opposing teams who are thinking, are oh, you really taking us lightly now? You think we're a bit of a joke, a bit of a pushover. The danger of doing that, apart from just uh, getting a bit of stick from the other side's manager, which I'm quite sure Parkson couldn't cope with. I don't know what he's about him in that department. Is that sometimes players get offended by that sort of things and they try to kick you. And sometimes kicks can lead to injuries. So I think for that reason, I wonder... I. I'll give you an odd example, which was a Brazilian player who, when he was young, 
was thought to be a massive prospect actually didn't go anywhere. And it might partly be because of his showboating. His name was Curlon. YouTube him and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. K-E-R-L-O-N. And he was supposed to be a good player, but he had a particular trick which he pulled off, which is to flick the ball up in the air and then control it with his head. And he was very good at keeping the ball up with his head, just heading it up all the time, back down, you know, not much height. And then, he, I mean, incredible skill. He could run while bouncing the ball on his head. And obviously that makes it incredibly difficult for anyone to tackle him without fouling him. Um, so have a look at him on YouTube, because what you will find is the players tend to get incensed because they think that he's taking a mick out of them. So they go for him. And there's a lot of potential leg-breaking tackles that you'll see that end his little runs, bouncing the ball on his head. I kind of put chicken and keeper on the second half because this game's so easy into a similar category. You could end up with a player getting a, a heavy tackle as retribution, possibly. Also, if, he, if he's ready for that, then probably start him. Um, oh, the spirit of football as well with uh, the Papa John's Cup. Now, that is something that we talked about a little bit in the broadcast that some fans disliked the under-21 teams coming into that competition. Um, it's quite difficult to tell if there's a boycott of that competition, frankly, because it doesn't get big crowds. <laughs> so I don't know any boycott makes that much difference. And indeed, they've been in a couple of years now. I don't think that really happens anymore, personally. Uh, I, if you want to get to watch Wrexham, go to watch Wrexham. And as Cryptic was it, rightly said, if you can't get a ticket, well, a game like this, which isn't selling out straight away, is your chance to do so. So, uh, yeah, I, I I don't hold much truck of that boycott thing. I don't like the idea of the you know, 21 teams being in the competition particularly, although as it's the lesser of two evils, the other option being them actually having teams in the league who's in the 21s, um, I'll take it. It's peculiar. It's a, it's going to be an oddity playing on the 21 team. I quite like the idea of that. Now, Jim asks, why do all the games start at the same time and the States games that start at different times so fans can watch more than one and keep up with the competition? Right now, it's a fair question. It, that is done in other countries. And in the Premier League, it's done to an extent, you know. And there are a couple of weekends a season where the Premier League are not shown on the terrestrial channels, but are shown on Amazon. And then they spread them all out. But why don't we in, in our league? Right, okay. There's a few important points to make here. One of which is these games aren't getting televised. So, you know, lower division, League 2, League 1, even championship, not that many are getting televised every weekend. So you're not going to be able to watch them all, even if they are spread out. Unless there's some streaming platform solution, I suppose. But also, this is a, a sort of cultural, political issue as well. British people love three o'clock on a Saturday as their football time. It's ingrained, it's traditional, and people hate it being messed around with. Now, part of that's just maybe a bit of old-fashioned or sentimental thinking, but part of it is practical. You know, Britain more really than other countries, except maybe Germany, well, even so more than Germany, have away fans. You go to Spain, you don't see any away fans. I've seen Madrid derbies, where Atletico Madrid have only got about 200 seats in the Bernabeu. Stadium that holds like 90,000. But they just don't go to away games. You watch them in your local bar. Um, Britain has a culture of away fans, which goes deep down the game. So 
let's imagine Wrexham are playing Exeter it's down in Devon. So you're going down quite deep southwest, a good four-hour drive at least. That game gets shifted for television to 5.45. You're going to be getting back late. I know midweek games are also late, but if you really are spreading games out that much, you really are inconveniencing people. You're also inconveniencing people who have already bought maybe a train ticket to go down. Trust me, train travel in Britain is not friendly. They don't do things like let you change your times unless you've got a very specific type of ticket and you have to have a degree in Latin to understand what the heck their regulations mean to work out which tickets and which trains you can use. It's farcical. Um, so probably if you buy a ticket in advance and then it's moved for television, you've just lost that money. And tickets on trains are not cheap in Britain at all. They're horribly expensive. So there's things like that, you know, just having those plans getting totally disrupted or get shifted to a different day, perhaps. At least in Britain, they announced the changes fairly early. In Spain, I love Spanish football. I follow it very closely in Spain. They often change it with a couple of weeks to go because there's no race sports, I suppose, so they don't really cater for them. And there's, there is this big emotional thing. And a lot of people just don't like having games on Sundays and Friday nights and Monday nights. You know, Saturday and Tuesday or Wednesday are the traditional football days. And, you know, if, if you can accuse us Brits of anything, we love living in the past. Um, although I, I like it too, i got to be honest. And there's something fun about seeing the other games. Remember last year against Stockport, those, their results and our results at the same time and seeing what's happening. There is something exciting about that. And, you know, the last day of the Premier League, so the last day of the season, all games must play at the same time unless there are games that are completely dead, they can play whenever they want. Uh, in Britain, actually, we don't tend to do that, but um, in other countries, they do. But in games like that, in days like that, where everything's playing at the same time, it's very exciting seeing everything shift and change. And, uh, bottom three alter as different goals go in. So there is a real love of that. And it's enshrined in law as well. The reasons why we have these issues of three o'clock matches being shown in Britain is because it's not legal that the government years ago protected three o'clock on a Saturday. So for two hours, you can't have live football on. The idea being you have to go to a game instead. Um, and that even accounts for international football. So if a channel has the rights to Spanish football, they can't show that game between three and five in Britain. They have to show it on a delay afterwards. So, yeah, it's it's a big emotional thing. It stands for something of British football fans as well as being practical. Now then, Dale Litton wanted more explanation as he's lost in Dallas. Well, just, just head towards South Fork. That's my best advice if you're lost in Dallas. He's not talking about that, is he? I'm being annoying. He's talking about this at the start of the match uh, against Bradford. Now, he saw a picture of it, and although our photographers at the Wrexham are brilliant, it's still a little difficult to capture movement in a, in a photograph. So what this is, basically, is the Wrexham fans have got up a banner to pass along. Now, this is something which was popularised first in countries like Italy, but has now become popular in Britain as well. Some incredible displays, you see, but this idea just of passing a banner along, it's, a, it's quite a sight to behold at a football ground. Liverpool picked it up very early and it's very impressive. Before every game, you have this big banner that you go to and they pass it across the cop, this huge thing. 
and then they also have one now down the sides of the pitch, which is impressive. So it's a show of support. It's a it's it's a show of, of loyalty and just trying to build an atmosphere beforehand. Here's one of my little personal little peccadillos. I don't like loud music before football matches. You know, uh, not because I'm old and sad, but because football fans should be allowed to make their own atmosphere. You know, <laughs> I you see that games in Argentina and the atmosphere is kicking off from about two hours beforehand. The Argentinians love singing, and it's worth looking up some Argentinian singing videos if you like. Clubs like Boca Juniors, uh, Independiente, uh, River Plate. Oh wow, the atmosphere is amazing. And then again, I went a couple of years ago, just before COVID, with my lad, Ben, to see a couple of games in Germany. We saw Schalke, one of the big teams, and we also saw their neighbours, Armenia Bielefeld. And it was such a great atmosphere. The fans, just waiting to get into the stand, were all standing behind the stand. They were in the ground, but they, they, instead of going straight up to the seats, they were all standing in the sort of concourse, which was open, having a beer and singing. And it was just an amazing atmosphere building up. And the away team of Magdeburg from East Germany, and they were in their, their seats, singing and singing away. Fabulous atmosphere created. You don't need to have them um, be blasted by Black Eyed Peas singing, tonight's going to be a good night, uh, because you can make your own atmosphere. I love that. This is my personal gripe, really, if I'm honest with you. Now then, Schultz and Dooley... Does this game, that's the Bradford game, count as a clean sheet for Mark Howard? Or is there another name for a game and a keeper only has penalties scored against him? Now then, I'm, I wanted to answer this particularly because I saw that some Bradford fans were obviously on the lookout for American fans because they don't know anything and were trying to mock this question. Um, well, you know, the thing I find with a lot of the questions from new football fans is that they're not only sensible questions, but they actually hit the nail on the head more than a lot of traditional British football fans who seem to think they just know everything because they were born here and don't make the effort to learn. So your questions are a good one. I mean, clean sheets is, is just a, a word, it's just a phrase. A clean sheet is you don't let any goals in. Although that doesn't count penalty sheets. Penalty sheets are seen as something completely separate. So Howard's kept a clean sheet against Wigan, even though he let in, what was it, three penalties? Um, your point is subtle, which is why it lost so many of the people who were whinging about it. Because, yeah, he's not let a goal in, in open play. And the reason I'm saying that you hit the nail on the head is because analysts, people working in football, looking at data, will look at statistics that include penalties, but also ones that don't. So you're absolutely right. Howard has not conceded the goal in open play in that match. Howard, in fact, we could say has played uh, 270 minutes and conceded one goal in open play. He can't help a penalty. So, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a fair point. So a clean sheet for reference is no goals conceded in the 90 minutes plus added time. So penalty sheets answer something different. But a penalty would damage your clean sheet, would break your clean sheet, if you will, besmirch your clean sheet. Um. But your point question goes to a more interesting and subtle level about how many goals are actually conceded that the goalkeeper has a reasonable chance of saving. So uh, an analyst looking at data on a goalkeeper would be more inclined to look at your understanding of it with goals conceded in open play than add the penalties in as well. So, yeah, so well done.
your rice. Jarvis, <laughs> I love this, did any other player go from us to Olympiacos like Matt Darbyshire? Well, let, let's be honest, there's a short answer to this, no. Um, also, there was a fair bit of time between Darbyshire being on loan to us in 2006 and going to Panathinaikos or Olympiacos, sorry, in Greece and being part of one of the big teams in Europe. There have been other players on Wrexham, of course, that have gone to big teams, and I don't mean just in Britain, although certainly there are plenty of those. Joy Jones, Mickey Thomas come immediately to mind. Eddie Nedzvecki went to Chelsea as well. But, you know, I'm thinking more of some players who maybe were with us during the National League and then suddenly popped up and you think, wow, this is a high standard for them. So uh, the obvious one for me, Aurelien Collin, who was a good defender for us, when we first dropped down to the National League, I liked him and we wanted to keep him and we failed to. He went to Greece, actually, now I think about it, Matt Darby's a link. And you sort of think, all right, he's playing the second division in Greece. Maybe that says something about the quality of the second division in Greece. But then from there, you get to move to the MLS and actually won the MLS with Sporting Kansas City and became a bit of a cult figure as well and had terrific figures as a defender. And I seem to recall, did he win Defender of the Year one season? So he, he spent a bit of time with Wrexham and did a decent job as well. Um, but, you know, we didn't see him becoming a, a big MLS star, to be, to be fair, you know. Um, next one up. Right, now, I've got some questions on Bickerstaff and Mullen here. So Wrexham AFC Tampa, explain to me why loaning out Bickerstaff is a great idea. The lad is a player and a talent. Current Roy, one of the best electricians in the Wrexham area, do you think with Mull's arrival we'll be in a better position? Seems to be our problem, you're scoring goals, but you have to get wins soon. Uh, fair question. Tane Emrys at Burton, I love Bickerstaff like a bit little baby Mullen with a dash of Lee magic thrown in. What would Mull Bickers play together look like? Are they too similar? Excellent, excellent questions. Right, okay. Firstly, why is Bickerstaff loaning out a good idea? Well, hmm. let's put it this way. Bickerstaff's caused a real problem, I think, for Parkinson, but a lovely problem to have. He clearly felt that, oh, he, he rates him. You know, he said he thinks he's the best finisher, one of the best at the club, and in training he's brilliant at burying his chances. Despite that, um, he's still young. He feels there's still more development to come. And he wanted to carefully pick the correct loan club to send him to. He didn't take him to the States, which tells you something about what he saw him as achieving this season, which was another season of experience. Now, let's see if he's ready next year, perhaps. But he's caused a problem, hasn't he? Because he's, he's had to play him because of Mullins' injury. He was only on the bench, but, you know, Waters and Dalby weren't effective in the first match of the season. Palmer and Bickerstaff came on and were good. And have continued to be so. And until Mullin comes back at the moment, or until he's signed somebody, and recording this during transfer deadline day, at the moment he bought in George Evans, there could be more to come. Um, he's a first choice striker. And he's seized that opportunity brilliantly. Uh, I'm, I'm very impressed with it. Son Parkins has got an issue now, hasn't he? You know, uh, Mullin comes back. What does he do? I mean, we also have an issue, as I wrote on the Wrexham fan blog, that Let's be honest, we've got a, a problem with registration here. Maybe not a problem, I'm sure it's all in hand and planned out. But at the well, since Evans arrived, we've got essentially 24 players to register 
and we're allowed to register 22. Last season, Bickerstaff was young enough to not have to be registered. This year, he does have to be. So that probably was another part of why they thought loaning him out might be a smart idea. It frees up a space. Now, yeah, Bickerstaff is taking up a space and doing really well. So you know, do we still want to loan him out if we bring another striker in? Or Maybe so. I don't know. Maybe you can't change that registration in terms of adding extra players to it after the transfer window closes until January. So you've got to get it right. So yeah, good question. I he's done ever so well. My gut feeling is I'd keep him with us, but if you know if we have wrong registration, it might be a, a decision that you can't take, uh, Parkinson, and you'll just have to see. Right, okay, you've done well for us, lad. You've clearly moving up more and more, improving more and more. We loan you out and see how you go. Uh, I don't know. But he's, he's he's caused a headache for Parkinson, which Parkinson, I'm sure. We'll be delighted with. The next question is about Mullin. Will he be able to make an impact? Um, well, I've got a sort of equivocal answer. Ultimately, yes, Mullin is Mullin. <laughs> he will score goals at this level. Remember, two seasons ago, he was the player of the season at this level. Scored 35 goals for Cambridge and they got promoted. Now, two years on, if anything, he's improved further. So, yeah, he will have a big impact, surely, only two. But we have the big codicil to add in. He has had a very nasty injury, and I think the sort of I don't want to say setback he's had this week, because um, you know physically he hasn't picked up anything more, uh, picked up any more injury, but just the realization that when you've got an injury like this, just getting into good condition and being able to run and keep going is difficult. Well, that's a concern, isn't it? Um, so we mustn't rush him. We really mustn't rush him. Takes a bit of time, fair enough, because we're playing all right. Um, we may well have another striker in by the time this is posted, who knows. And yes, I think he will make a massive, massive impact, but we may have to be patient with him. He may need a few games to get in the swing of things, maybe a few reserve games. My lad Ben also pointed out the thing that he's scared of is every single team now will retain their centre-backs, hit them in the elbow, with the elbow in the ribs when no one's looking, you know, try and depolitate him. And he's right. So let's see what happens. And the third one was could Mullin, wasn't it? Mullin and are they too similar or could they play together? I think they could play together, personally, but as you saw in Welcome to Wrexham, Parkinson quite likes the idea of like a big striker and a little striker feeding off. It's one of the old traditional ideas of football. And it certainly gives you a certain release, doesn't it? If we're in under pressure in our own half. We want to pass out from the back, but we can mix it up really well. So if we want to, we can go long to a big bloke like Palmer, who's got a good chance of fighting for and winning the ball. And Mullen is actually good in those circumstances. He's not big, but he just makes such a problem for centre-backs. The Danish headers, they, they let it bounce. Once they let it bounce, Mullen's got them. So um, I think you could, but you would maybe lose a bit of that ability to clear when there's danger and possibly have the ball held up by a striker winning the header. Um, and like I said, Parkinson likes creatively anyway that with Palmer winning headers and causing problems in the box or Dolby, that Mullen gets more to work off. So I think he likes the big man, little man combination, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't play pick a staff with Mullen. And it could be because they're both quite sharp trying to bring other players in, very sharp in the Mullen's case, that they may well you know, gel very well together. But I suspect his his go-to move will be big guy, little guy, I suspect.
slightly simplifying it rather. A Fennel says, newbie question here. Who watches the watchers? I like this. Was that ref getting bribed? No, don't worry about that. Was there any way for the decision to be overturned? Couldn't see anything as I followed an eye follow in Canada, but something was very, very wrong with the decision. But there was. Yes, I totally agree. But let me just clear a few things. Like bribery, forget about it. No way. There's no way there was bribery there. I'm not saying there's no corruption in football uh, at all, but the corruption, when it happens, tends to be about betting, you know? People can bet on when the first throw-in will be, so you kick the ball off, straight off the pitch and they kick off, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I, I, you know, I really, it's not bribery. The ref made some poor decisions, but he's straight. I must emphasise that. Um, so, no, no, don't think in those terms. He's, he's made some poor judgments. He's not been helped out by his lines, and a couple in the first half as well. Um, Mike the ref is the man to... Who answers these sort of questions? And he has, if you have a look through videos he's made for us on Dragon Heart and stuff he's put on Twitter, talks about assessing. He's a referee's assessor. So every game will have an assessor watching the referee, giving them feedback afterwards and giving them a mark on different parts of their handling of the game. And that will all be collated. Referees will be promoted, relegated if they show promise or show incompetence. So he will have been judged. By in that game, I believe it was George Kane, who's a very experienced ex referee, who was a referee's assessor in that game. So, every game has a referee's assessor. Um, so, that's who watches the watches. Uh, there's no recourse for a mistake. You just have to take it on the chin. Um, the, there have been occasions where a game's been replayed, but they maybe cause more problems than it's worth. The famous one, I suppose, was about 10, 12 years ago, something like that, by a Leverkusen in the German Bundesliga, a striker called Stefan Kiesling, and he scores with a header, or appears to score with a header. He's quite wide at the far post, and he heads it towards goal, and it's nestling in the goal, the ball. Celebrations, goal given, the defender's going crazy. And it turns out they're right, because there was a hole in the net near the post about halfway up. And by com nobody knew, nobody had noticed, by complete fluke, he'd headed the ball and had gone through that hole into the net. So it really looked like a goal unless you watch it in slow motion and realise he'd headed it into the side netting and it had gone through that netting. And now that game was replayed, or I can't remember if it was replayed fully or replayed from that point, but it caused all sorts of aggregation. And so I think, understandably, administrators are not keen to do that sort of thing again. So the chances are no, no, you will not get any sort of replay, certainly in that situation. I mean, I, I think it's a terrible decision, but I have heard some people, mostly of Bradford's persuasion, say they think it is a penalty. And if I really try hard, I can I can see why the ref's given it, although I think he's mistaken. There is contact, it's not enough for a penalty, it's not enough for a free kick, but there was contact, so if the ref sees it that way, the ref sees it that way. I moan about refs sometimes, although I think generally this season they've been very good. I do moan about them, but I would never attempt to say they're not honest. I really wouldn't say that. That would be a very serious thing, you know, if that was the case. I, I really don't think so at all. Um, and then following on from that, Sherry asks, what is the worst referee called Wrexham have ever suffered? Oh, my word. So many injustices. <laughs> well, Mike the Ref um, came up with a beauty. In reply to that tweet, 
when a striker called Craig Falkenbridge scored in a midweek game, I want to say it was against Wickham, but probably wasn't, where the referee disallowed it for offside and then, to be fair to him, admitted afterwards that he'd seen the fluorescent jacket of a steward in the stand near where the linesman was standing and he thought it was the flag and gave offside, but it wasn't offside. The linesman hadn't raised his flag, but he fell for that. What Mike could uh, also said is that poor Falkenbridge was robbed three days earlier. Because three days earlier, Falkenbridge shot and scored, and the ball hit the, the nets. Don't tend to have them as a percentage. They used to have solid net supports coming out the top of each post. And the ball hit one of those net supports, bounced back down, and the referee genuinely thought the ball had hit the post and hadn't gone in. So there's two pretty major ones. And another one, which I know I've talked about before, but I'll say quickly, was one of Wrexham's biggest games, 1984. Amazingly, we knocked Porto out of Europe, one of the big teams in Europe. And then we're up against Roma. And we lost 2-0 at Roma, but neither of the goals should have counted. The first one was a penalty for handball. Big crowd of players at the near post. Corner comes in. Arm goes up and handles it. Ref gives a penalty. And you look at the replays, no VAR then. It was a Roma player who jumped up and handled it. The referee mistakenly thought it was a Wrexham player. So it's 1-0 to Roma. And then their second goal was a shot from outside the area, which with the current rules would have been perfectly legal. But then the rules are offside are much more black and white, basically. If you're standing offside, you're offside. And there was a player standing offside. Now he'd be ruled not to be interfering the play. But in those days, you're offside, you shouldn't be. So they should have, and he's quite a long way offside. So they both should have been disallowed. That's, that's somewhat galling, isn't it? Let's be honest. I'm sure there's many more. If anyone wants to stick them in the comments, I'm sure I've missed out some. Now, cryptic. I thought we weren't allowed standing and had to be all seated because Barrow had a lot of seating areas. Right, now I'm cryptic. If you are in the Premier League or the Championship, you're supposed to be all seated. Although, if you get promoted into the Championship for the first time since that legislation was brought in, you've got four years' grace to actually turn your stadium into an all-seater stadium. So Premier League must be all-seater. Championship must be all-seater, but you get four years to do it when you first come up. League One or League Two can have standing areas. You will have seen, I'm sure, the discussion about safe standing um, and whether the cop should have it, and the cop use cop stand will have that. And that's the sort of solution to this, in a way. Although it's more expensive than to put in normal seats in, where you have a rail in front. Officially, they're called rail seats. And you can sit on the seat or you can stand up. Um, now, the reason Wrexham are looking at this, firstly, it's quite new technology, building a new stand, and you've got the money too, you might as well go for the new technology. Secondly, last season, they allowed safe standing in Premier League and international games, and at Wembley in the, in the Carabao Cup final as well. So things are moving in that direction uh, in order to try and get, uh, you know, sort of more standing supporters in. It's um, also an international regulation. So Wrexham want to host international games. Wales can't play. All competitive internationals have to be all seated. So when Wrexham held them, since the law was brought in, if the cop was open, you couldn't open it for the Wales game. It decided to stand the ground for that. So those are the reasons we've done it. And we're also future-proofing ourselves as we are ambitious and we want to get as high the ladder as we can. Uh, but yeah, so lower, lower levels, you can have standing areas. Standing areas traditionally are louder, 
they add their ads to atmosphere. Standing areas also usually are cheaper, although I, uh, the real seats, I suspect, are clubs aren't. I don't think it's uh, a way to make a bit of extra money out of fans. But yeah, so those are the actual rules that, that apply. Now, here's a great question from Cryptic that I wanted to look up. Um, again, about Barrow, there seems to be very little room around the boundary for long throws of corner kicks. Is there a minimum requirement of space between the pitch and the advertising hoardings? Well, I found the regulation. This is from the, the Football Leagues handbook, so you could have different regulations elsewhere. I looked at FIFA's handbook, by the way, and there's no rule except there should be a reasonable amount of space. Um, so, those are dimensions of play. Shortest distance from the touchline, that's the side of the pitches, and the pitch perimeter barrier should ideally be 2.375 metres, but no less than 2.25. So what's that in old money? That's about six feet something. As you can see, well, I'm quite sure barrel wasn't really, was it? Um, shortest distance between the goal line and the pitch parameter, same thing. Now, this sadly became a major issue at the end of last season because a Bath City player suffered a horrible head injury. He crashed into some barriers which had concrete behind them, right up behind the goal. It was horrible. And partly as a result of that, the government and the PFA, the players' union, have got together and written an open letter to the FA, Football League and National League asking for stricter regulations on safety around the pitch. Now, I know you're asking this about Toza taking throw-ins off for corner kicks. At corner kicks, you wouldn't really see an issue. You don't tend to take a long run up for a corner kick. Um, Toza's throw-ins, of course, are affected by the length of uh, run-up he can achieve, although he can do a good long throw from a standing start, but it's more of a human level rather than the superhuman levels that he attains. Well, it's life. <laughs> that, that's at the, if you, if you, I mean, those regulations, the wording of them, were really more of a suggested, you know, should ideally be. So, you know, I'm afraid if there's not much room, there's not much room. You get some opposites. Do you remember Rexham playing Gateshead last season on an athletic stadium where he could run as far as he wanted? And the first one, he was like, he was about seven lanes of the running track out, and he—that uh, was the only one he did like that. I think he had too much of a long run up, lost his rhythm. So after that, he was doing it from shorter. But yeah, that was a—that was a real luxury for him, wasn't it? Ellie says hello from Colorado. Hey, a Wrexham fan because of documentary. He loves the commentaries we do as well. Learning a lot. Nice one. Delighted to hear that, Kelly. Question: Why is the pitch measured in yards instead of meters? Well, Kelly, I mean, as you just saw in those regulations, they were in meters. It's just personal choice, but Britain is. Oh, don't let me go there. <laughs> We've always clung on to the traditional measurements. So in Britain, we talk about miles in terms of distance. We talk about feet and inches. We tend to talk about stones and pounds, whereas Europe will go more metric. Uh, we seem to kilograms seem to have come in a bit more in Britain, um, and meters occasionally, but generally. In Britain, we use the old imperial measurements still. Um, like I say, in supermarkets, they don't. Supermarkets will have things in grams and, and kilograms, but generally, uh, yeah, in Britain, that's what we do. The road signs are in miles. The cars are designed with miles on the speedometer. So, yeah, it's, it's just that. It's just that. And football 
is, as I said before, about Saturday at three o'clock, quite traditional. So, yeah, it's essentially it's British people clinging on to the past, which is our national sport. And finally, Kelly Morrison's asked a fantastic question, which I'm not going to answer. Don't get angry, Kelly, but you'll realize by in a second. Is there something the goalkeeper's looking for during penalty kicks, which indicates which way he'll go? Or is he taking cues from the coaches on the sideline? As always, thanks for sharing the knowledge. What little knowledge I have, Kelly, you're more than welcome to. In this case, I'm not going to answer it now because I think that deserves a podcast on its own. I'm going to do an, a bonus Ask Rexton and I'm going to address that. I was a fa- I'm a failed goalkeeper. Um, I like to think I know a little bit about goalkeeping. I don't, but I like to think it. So I'm going to do a, a full podcast just on that to give some examples go into detail and then probably like usual at the end say but i haven't said that none of it really matters uh that's my style so anyway kelly thank you for that and we'll we'll do a a full-on podcast on just that and in the meantime well join us at tranmere of course we'll be live on wrexham player both streaming and audio big derby this one proper proper match this will be interesting says our chaps i'm mark griffiths from wrexham afc don't you know (laughs) 